Welcome to New Testament Topics with Brother Elliot Maloney, a Benedictine monk and professor of New Testament studies at St. Vincent's Seminary, Latrobe, Pennsylvania. Hello, this is Brother Elliot, and I'd like to continue with our part two of our podcast on what was Jesus thinking. This is a study, a continuation of what we started in part one, a study of what the Gospels indicate what was on Jesus' mind in those last days of his life. We've already set the stage of the last part of Jesus' mission when he realized that he had to go to Jerusalem. He had to criticize the religious leadership and somehow advance God's will with the coming of the kingdom of God. In doing this, he knew that he was risking his life with that corrupt and powerful temple priesthood in the capital, which was also the seat of Roman power that despised and oppressed God's chosen people. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have Jesus actually predict his death several times when he says, quote, The Son of Man must suffer greatly and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. Mark 8.31 and parallels, and there are three, two more repetitions of that passion prediction. Luke's Jesus makes it clear, saying, it is impossible for a prophet to die outside of Jerusalem, Luke 13. So let's just pick up where we left off in the podcast, part one, what was, what was Jesus thinking? Jesus has entered Jerusalem, causing quite a stir with his highly symbolic entrance into the city riding the colt of a donkey. This allusion to the prophet Zechariah was too obvious for anyone to miss. Let me quote it. The prophet Zechariah says, Shout for joy, O daughter Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. A just savior is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, he will proclaim peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea. Zechariah 9. The Gospel of Mark tells us in chapter 11 that having arrived in Jesus in Jerusalem, having arrived in Jerusalem, Jesus first went to the temple area and, quote, looked around at everything. That's in verse 11. What was Jesus thinking when he suddenly left it and went out of town to the little village of Bethany with taking the twelve with him? Was he revulsed by what he saw there? Well, we, we don't know what, he, what exactly when it came to him to do so. But the very next day he returned to the city and as soon as he walked into the outer court of the temple, Mark tells us, quote, 
he began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. Now Mark makes a big point that Jesus was teaching here when he said in the last two what he said in the last two sentences. He was quoting from the ancient prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. So in Isaiah 2-3, as far back as the 8th century BCE, the prophet insisted that God made the temple to be a place for the instruction of all the nations. Israel was supposed to be a light to them and a source for their right conduct. The temple priesthood in Jesus' time, with their insistence on strict purity rules, had made worship of God, of the one God, had made it impossible for anybody but a very compliant Jew. Gentiles were not considered worthy to pray there. Worse yet, the priests had instituted this pay-for-sacrifice system that literally turned the outer court of the temple into a money exchange, an animal bazaar, regulated, of course, by the power and economic control of the priests. They had made worship contingent on their mediation and replaced prayer with the commercial transactions necessary to pure, procure animals for their sacrifices. Well, Jesus made quite a stir, and the reaction to it was also extreme, for the Gospel again tells us, quote, When the chief priests and scribes heard it, they started looking for a way to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. That's verses 18 and 19 in Mark 11. Now, they leave the city for the night. Was this out of disdain for what the temple had become? Or was Jesus already concerned for the safety of his followers? Well, here's where the plot now really is sad, I think, more than scary. One of Jesus' hand-picked apostles evidently misunderstands Jesus' actions so badly that he decides to turn Jesus into the authorities. The gospel writers are outraged by this from their point of view 30, 40, and 50 years later, and they attribute all kinds of evil motives to Judas. But, but I, I think that Judas just didn't get it. Now, remember, Judas was a hand-picked uh, follower, picked by Jesus himself as part of his inner circle. No, I think that what happened was that Judas couldn't understand the breadth of Jesus' prophetic actions, the depth of them. 
perhaps thinking that Jesus was becoming unstable. My personal opinion is that historically, Judas went to the, Judas, the Jewish authorities because he wanted to prevent Jesus from causing a riot and a bloody reprisal against the people from the Roman soldiers who were so menacingly present at every Passover in Jerusalem. Well, because all of the gospel accounts are different, we'll never know the exact disposition of Judas, nor the details of what he did, but they aren't really crucial to what happens next. Next, Jesus surely meant his prophetic actions in the temple to be provocative. It was too obvious. He had to critique the misappropriation of God's house, which was supposed to be a house of prayer, and its clerical obstructionism to real prayer with God. He found out quickly that his actions had not brought about any repentance or change from the chief priest. Oh, no. He said he saw now that his mission had failed. All the way in Galilee, people kind of understood what he said, but didn't really get it. He comes to the center of the religion, the religious authorities. His teaching had made little impact, and his doctrine of the renewal of God's kingdom was rejected by the religious authorities. Even his own inner disciples didn't really understand his confidence in the coming of the kingdom. So Jesus had to act quickly, for he knew that he and his disciples were no longer safe from the threat of reprisal. He had to do something to prepare them for his certain demise in the wrath and seeming victory of those temple authorities. So a bit later that week, Jesus decided to hold a special meal. Now it appears to be a Passover meal, but it's not a usual one. It was probably before Passover. Because a usual Passover meal would involve Jesus' whole family, his mother, his relatives from Nazareth. Instead, he asked the twelve, his new family, those twelve who were specially called to symbolize his actions for the twelve tribes of Israel. And although we don't know whether their wives were present, we, we kind of understand that all their relatives, which would be usual at a Passover, they were not at the Passover or the special meal that Jesus had. The meal would have the ritual form of a Passover meal as prescribed by Jewish law in Deuteronomy 16, 1-8. You take a look at that and see that that's what the modern Jewish Seder service on Passover is like. It has a ritual of prayers and many symbolic acts, and Jesus, being the presider, would have to comment on each of them. It would be a celebration, first of all, of God's liberation of Israel from the slavery of Egypt, a partaking of the lamb slaughtered in sacrifice, 
but Jesus would add something new. He would give his disciples a new gift, consecrating in a new way the dinner's bread of praise and its wine of thanksgiving shared after the lamb was eaten. Well, each of the three synoptic accounts has a different rendition of Jesus' words over the bread and wine. And St. Paul is the fourth one who recounts the Last Supper in his own slightly different way, in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. Each account has greatly abbreviated the actual event of the Supper, not even recording Jesus' explanations of the symbols and storytelling, even omitting telling about the greater part of the meal itself. But the accounts now just give the words um, about the bread shared before the meal and the wine taken after the meal. That would be the third cup of wine of a Seder service, the third cup taken after the meal. Such abbreviation tells us that in each of the four communities that passed on this tradition, the Last Supper had been reduced to a formulaic retelling pronounced in the liturgies, yes, on the Sunday liturgy of each of the earliest churches. Thus, with that discrepancy, we cannot know the exact nuances of Jesus' historical presentation of bread and wine at the supper. But we must surmise the meaning of the original action from what was remembered. We'll examine carefully the slightly different emphases of each of the four presentations of the Eucharistic words of the Last Supper that we actually do have in the Synoptic Gospels and 1 Corinthians. Much study much, an enormous amount of study has been given to draw out by historical criticism the main nuggets of meaning of what Jesus actually said, what his words were and what they meant. There are really four or five central uh, parts to the meaning. First of all, he announces his upcoming demise would surely die and yet he promises that the kingdom will come and that he will be joyfully present in it to share the messianic banquet with all second Jesus gives the gifts of his whole life and his death upcoming death for the spiritual nourishment of his beloved community he guarantees his continued presence with them under the ritual symbols of bread and wine, the bread and wine of the meal. Third, the broken bread and the blood-red wine speak to his life given for all in preparation of the kingdom. Fourth, in the Hebrew religion, sin could only be remitted by blood, the expiatory blood of a sacrificial victim. And so, the Church's Eucharist, that sacramental celebration, 
records and celebrates the death of Jesus in which the death of Jesus is responsible for the forgiveness of the sins of all. Fifth, and finally, in the ancient Near East, covenants had to be ratified by blood. They had no notary public to put a seal on it as we do today, but they, they sacrificed an animal. And so God's will was ratified, Jesus says, by his death in a new, or better said, a renewed covenant. I think this is a good place to stop now with the promise that we'll take up each of these points in our next podcast, What Was Jesus Thinking? Part 3. This is Brother Elliot Maloney. Thanks for listening in today. See you again on New Testament Topics with Brother Elliot.